costly. It's too late. It's a little late. It went the length of the court. And it won't count. Well, good evening and welcome to church. Uh, my name is Rowan. And that is what you call a Hail Mary shot. Right? It's that moment when there's absolutely nothing you can do. You're trying to get on top. The buzzer's about to go. And so you throw the ball from a massive distance and pray to God, please let it go in and then hope that it does. <laughs> Unfortunately for the guy who made that shot, Marcus Camby, uh, the ball hadn't left his hand before the buzzer went. And so it wasn't counted. Oh. And what I want to help us understand tonight as we look at this last passage in the book of James is that unfortunately for many of us, the Hail Mary shot is the way we think about God. We live our lives and live the game of life. We get on with everything that we're doing and we do, do, do. We get to all these situations and then sometimes we find ourselves in a pickle where we're like, we can't do it on our own and we really need someone to come and help us. And so at the last minute, maybe on our deathbed or maybe when things have just gone to custard, we shoot up the prayer to God and say, help me, I can't do it anymore. And that's the kind of last minute, please, kind of Hail Mary type shot. What James, who's written this book we've been looking at over the past um, number of weeks, is saying is that real faith, people who really believe in Jesus, who trust in Him with their lives, those who have faith that, that depend on Jesus, that rely on Him, those that trust that, pray. They live a life of prayer, not just shooting up the Hail Mary prayer at the end when things go to custard, but they've got a relationship with God. They're depending on God, not as a last resort, but on all of life. What I want us each to come away with tonight is I think what James is saying so clearly in this passage, real faith praise. If you want to write a point down that kind of will take you through the rest of this kind of section, real faith praise is a great point to write down because we'll be looking at how real faith plays over the rest of our time together tonight. Real faith praise. So why don't we pray now, as we look at God's Word, He'd help us to understand it and to put it into action as we come to the end of this section of the Bible. Let's pray. Lord, tonight we come from all sorts of different places. For many of us, our heads have been in different areas and different things going on, and there's kind of different problems and frustrations with life and tiredness creeping in and we just ask that tonight would be a time that you focus us in on your word. You'd help us to think clearly and helpfully about what it means to trust you with our lives. You'd help us to engage with you as you speak to us, that you might show us who you are. And so see us come away from your word this evening, built up, encouraged and prayerful. Amen. Real faith praise. Come with me, James. Chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. As James kind of goes on to this next section, we're seeing he's showing that the life of faith needs to be a life of dependence. He's actually in contrast to what he'd said just before in verse 12. Uh, we read that last week and some people kind of asked, why didn't we talk about verse 12 at all? It's because I think there's a kind of a hinge happening here that he's showing us what real faith is in comparison to what it is when we stand on our word. See, we saw in verse 12 that we read last week and this week that we shouldn't swear by any other name. 
We shouldn't swear by anything in heaven or on earth or by anyone else. Why do people like swear on something? Why do people say, look, I guarantee you, like on my mother's grave, right? Or I guarantee you as, as true as Auckland is a city or as true as God exists, this happened. If you think about it, we say that because we're trying to add more weight to our word. We think that our word is, is not enough. And so we want the person to be convinced. And so we, we kind of swear on something else to say it's, it's super sure and, and super set. And so we can convince others on that. And James has said to us, to the people he's writing to and to us, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. You, you don't need to go and convince people that your word is so true and right by swearing on things. You just need to let the truth be the truth. And that means that in contrast to the way that we live, why do we want people to, to take my word? Because so often we, we, we want people to trust us rather than God. He's going to go on in this section of the Bible and show us that real faith is dependent on God, not on how sure our word is or what others think of our words. But as a side note, some of us have issues with our words, don't we? Some of us have trouble... Um, Sticking to our words, letting our yes be yes and our no be no. Who, who struggles with that? That's a bit of confession, big strong hands. Don't kind of lose these. I'm not there sometimes. Yeah, yeah, shall we say, yeah, me too. I struggle with that. Uh, what I've worked out, I've got a tip for you. Um, what I've worked out is I used to think it's just about saying the truth. And I, I think I, I'm keen at saying the truth. When I say I want to be somewhere at a certain time, I really do want to be there at a certain time. But I've worked out that letting your yes be yes and your no be no means you have to change your actions as well as your words. Because my actions mean I actually got to get there when I said I'd get there. And that's the problem. Stuff happens in life, so I need to make time for that. I need to change the way I live. Why? Because words matter. Because we are people who speak about the Word of God. But we should just be people whose yes is yes and whose no is no. And if that's you tonight, hear God's Word clearly. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't be like the maybe person. Hang out on Facebook in maybe zone or interested zone. Right? We, I know that's you. Right? We, like, we tick the maybe box and wait until there'll be a whole swarm of options. And like, what am I going to do on that night? I think part of what it means to be a godly Christian is to be someone who commits to their plans. To prayerfully depend on God and let your yes be yes and your no be no. And make a decision to go to this party. And then an even better party comes up. doesn't matter. You go to the one you said you'd go to. Right? Because that's what it is. You let your yes be yes and your no be no. But I'll miss out on the best party ever. Well, you don't want to miss out on heaven, do you? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. So James then says, as he moves into this section, that those who trust God need to be dependent. Not independent, saying everyone trust me and swear on something else, but dependent on God. And not just in the Hail Mary moments where we're like, okay, God, I'll depend on you now. The car's gone off the bridge. It's going down in the air, about to crash into a river. I'll pray. Hang on. Now, <laughs> not like that, but in all of life. So listen to the different areas that he says. Uh, be dependent on God. Number one, is anyone in trouble? Is any of you in trouble? Literally, it's, it's, are any of you in hardship? And James has been writing to these people who are in a context of persecution. They're getting persecuted from all around them. And what he's saying is the first stop for the person who has faith, who trusts, who relies and depends on God, is to speak to God about it. What a great comfort it is to go to the Father who is in control of all things and pray to Him. Is anyone in trouble? He should pray. Talk to God. He's in control. Come to Him as our Father. 
If you're not a Christian, I want to say one of the things you're missing out on, which is, I think, one of the best things of Christianity, is a relationship with God. And you get to call the one who made you your dad. You get to speak to him in prayer. Bring your concerns before him, knowing that he loves you and cares for you. What a joy it is to be able to talk to God and him listen. Talk to him as our dad and us as his children. It is a joy to pray. Is anyone in trouble? Are you bearing hardship? Pray. Secondly, is anyone happy? Is anyone literally kind of keeping up courage? Was that a, was that a yeah, I am? I didn't hear it, sorry. Uh, if any of you are happy, then we should sing songs of praise. That just kind of makes sense. I don't know. For me, that comes naturally. Maybe because I'm an extrovert and I think with my mouth. But if I'm happy, I'm kind of singing some fun song. It's kind of going on in my head. Like, I'm so happy it's going on sometimes. It is right now. Um, <laughs> Whatever his name is. Is it Pharrell Williams? Are you for real? Yeah, anyway. Oh, I thought that was a funny joke. It's all right. But if anyone is happy, we should sing songs of praise. Let's, let's think through that a minute. Why should I sing songs of praise if I'm happy? Why does God deserve my praise if I'm happy? Because he gives me everything. Because he's in control of everything. And so if it's that I'm happy, we should respond by singing about our great God, singing truths about him. Uh, we should actually respond by speaking to him, praying to him in praise. Now, the reason that we, we sing together as a church and that Christians sing is because we have a God who's given us so much. Uh, in Colossians 3, Paul says this, and I want you to note as he talks about it, that there's a vertical dimension to singing and a horizontal dimension. There's a one another and there's an us and God. Have a look. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you, the word of Christ, in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another, there's the horizontal between one another, through psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God, vertical, with gratitude in your hearts. If we are happy, if we have things to be excited about, then we should be praising our God who's given them to us in the hearing of others. We actually sing at church to one another as we sing to God. As we encourage one another about the truths of who Jesus is and what he's done, we're building one another up and that pleases God as he hears truths about himself and us praising him for what he's done. See, singing should be a regular and normal and everyday part of our lives. Singing praises to our God as people who are dependent on him. Because if we recognize we're dependent on him, that he controls everything, then as things go well, we will praise him. How often do you sing his praises? When you come to church, you're like, I'm so looking forward to singing together with other Christians about what we believe, about the truth that will be known across the whole world when Jesus comes back. And reminding one another and me being reminded of who God is and what he's done and singing our praises to our Father in heaven. That should be a highlight of what we do. Don't come late to church and miss the singing bit at the start. Come on time, be ready, sing. It's a great encouragement. But literally, thanks for encouraging me, brother. Uh, literally... The word, therefore, happy is, is keeping up courage. It's not just like, is anyone happy? Oh, who's happy? You know, it's actually a, like a kind of idea of giving good cheer when someone is down. It's, is any of you kind of encouraging the other, kind of girding their loins together to say, let's go? That's the kind of idea of that word. And so you see another part of the encouragement as we do that, that encouragement to build one another up. Now, we need to make sure that the songs that we're singing in church and out of church actually are songs that come from the Scriptures, that are true. Now, think about it. Why would God want people to sing praises about Him or to Him that aren't true? 
I was just, you know, illustration all the time. If Sarah came and said to me, look, Rowan, I wrote you a song about how amazing your three feet are. I'd be like, um, I've only got two feet. <laughs> it's a bit awkward you singing this song about, I love your three feet. I'm like, I don't have three feet. And she doesn't really say that. That's, I just made that up. But you want to sing truth about God. God's not impressed by things that aren't true as we sing them to one another, as we sing lies about him. So we want to make sure it's true so we can encourage one another and build one another up in that. We want to make sure the songs we're singing have got content, not just, oh, Jesus, you're, you're my boyfriend and you're awesome. Like, sometimes that's what Christian songs are, let's be honest. Uh, the other problem with songs on the side is sometimes they're so rich in theology that you can't sing them. Right? It's like, oh, how do I sing this? This song feels horrible. You're like, and you, you it's like, it's like getting like a four-legged table, putting it on Simon Street, trying to push it up the road. Right? You can do it, and the table will still work, but it's like the whole way as you go. Right? What we need is songs that are, that, are, that are kind of got good melodies that help us remember them, that are based in truth. Because we need to be singing praises to our God, because we're dependent on Him. Real faith prays in times of persecution. Real faith prays in times of happiness and moments that we need courage by praising God. And the third area we see real faith praying in is times of sickness. Real faith prays in times of sickness. Let's have a look at verse 14 again and see what James is saying here. 5 verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church, that's just the pastors, um, to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, you read that passage and you kind of go, wow, I've got a lot of questions. I don't know. Do you, do you read that and go, yeah, that's real clear. I've got it. And no, okay, you know, they were just sitting there. As I read that, there are just lots of questions in this. Um, so if they're sick, why do you call the elders? What's the deal with oil? What sort of oil do you need to bring and how does that work? And why is, does, is the sick person forgiven? Uh, and why is it talking about sin? And how does that, what's that got to do with, what's sickness got to do with confession? There's all sorts of questions that come through here. What I want to do is give you a number of things that this passage is not saying. Some of them will be a bit challenging. You'll be like, hang on a minute. I want to say what it's not saying. And then give you a picture at the end of a talk. We'll spend the rest of our time on this kind of picture about what the passage is saying and why. And I think it's quite profound when we get it. So here's a number of points about what this passage is not saying. Number one. The Roman Catholic Church uses this passage to justify what it calls the sacrament of the last rites, or extreme unction, which just means final anointing. The Roman Catholic Church kind of comes along and says, when someone's about to die, they're, on, they're about to take their last breath, you want to call a priest in and then pray for the person, to, to pray for their forgiveness, as the, the priest is a mediator between uh, them and God. And then hopefully their sins are forgiven, they die, and off they go into heaven. Phew, forgiven. That's the kind of idea behind last rites. Uh, and the problem with it is, is the priest has to do it. Now, nowhere in this passage is there a priest involved. Uh, the elders of the church, they're, they're pastors, they're, they're to teach. That's the role that pastors are given, to teach and pray for the church and, and uh, equip the saints for works of service. In, in the Old Testament, uh, the priests were the one who went on behalf of Israel, the people of God, to God and offered sacrifices to Him. 
In the New Testament, we have no need for an earthly mediator because we've already got one. Jesus. Jesus is the one that goes between us and God. There's no special prayer a priest can say or special oil that they can sprinkle on someone or say at that very last moment to kind of be the mediator between them and God. There is only one mediator. And often they pray a prayer called the Hail Mary, and that's where it gets the name from in that basketball throw. The Hail Mary is that last moment prayer that we, we shoot out. It literally ends like this. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. It's literally a last minute prayer asking Mary to be the mediator for us. Asking Mary to pray for the person who's about to die that their sins might be forgiven. And so at that point, we've got to go, this is not what this passage is talking about. Very clearly, the New Testament says that there is only one mediator between us and God. Let me show it to you so it's blatantly obvious. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 on the screen. There is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. That's pretty clear, right? One mediator. So it can't be talking about that. That's what, not what it's saying. It's not saying that we need to call the elders of the church when someone's about to die and pray for them and put oil on them so that they can be forgiven and then go off to heaven sweet. Number one. Number, number two, the second thing that it's not saying is that we therefore should go and have healing services. We should go out and start up healing services and invite all these people in because this is the obvious thing that's happening here. Uh, the elders are there and they're, they're praying for people. They're anointing them with oil. And so some people come along and go, we need more healing. Here it looks like James is promising healing and so we're never going to get the, the elders and run healing services and invite people in and, and get some kind of special oil. But James tells the elders to go to the sick person, not the sick person to come to the healing meeting. There's something interesting about that there. Now I'm not saying that we shouldn't be praying for someone to be healed. Healing is definitely a gift that we see in the scriptures. And, and we should ask that God can heal people and we ought because God can he doesn't promise to, not before Jesus comes back. But he can heal people, and he has throughout history, so we should be praying for people. But this idea of having services that people come in and basing it here in, in this passage particularly, I think is what it's saying. Here, the elders are the ones that are to be called, not those with the gifts of healing. Nowhere does it say that elders of the church have or should have gifts of healing. Those two don't line up anywhere together. So why is James saying when the person is sick, why is he saying, go get the elders to come and pray for them? Why is that going on? The elders were to teach the word of God and to hold out what the scriptures say. Why wouldn't he say, go get the people with gifts of healing? So I don't think he's saying that we should have healing services here in that way because of this passage. Third way that the passage has been misapplied. This passage is grossly misapplied when healing doesn't work. In other words, when someone prays for someone to be healed and they maybe get the elders of the church and they pray for them, uh, please you know, take this cancer away, and, and the person isn't healed. And what do people say then at that moment? Well, so often people who try to do these healing ministries say, well, you didn't pray with enough faith. And they base it in this passage because it's the prayer of faith that heals. And so if, if you're there and you're sick, and you've asked the elders to come and, and you're not healed, they'll say, well, you didn't have enough faith. Or maybe that the elders that prayed didn't have enough faith. They didn't trust in God enough for that prayer to be effective. Now, the problem with that is it's kind of like we 
are coming to God and saying, you know, if I've got enough faith, God, I can twist your arm to make you do what you didn't want to do in the first place. It's kind of like a little kid who stands there and says, well, you know, you deserve to give me more chocolate. You know, who says that? No, I don't. Well, if I really, really trust you, you know, if I listen to you for the next day, if I do right stuff, will you give me chocolate then? I'm like, no, you just ate like five packets of chocolate. No. (laughs) And that's the other thing that people say, that maybe it didn't happen because you weren't righteous enough from this passage. Because it's the prayer of a righteous man is is powerful and effective. Maybe there's some unconfessed sin in your life, and that's why. But I want to say that there are people who actually have been righteous and faithful and God has still answered their prayer with a no. And I think this is the knockdown argument. See, for instance, throughout the scriptures, there are a number of people that pray to God for certain things to happen and God answers it with a no. And I think they're pretty righteous and faithful. One of them is Paul when he says that the thorn in his flesh has not been removed, even though he's prayed many times. God's answered his prayer with a no. Check it out, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Write that down, 12, verse 7. The other one is Trophimus. He's in 2 Timothy 4. Trophimus was a friend of Paul's, a companion with Paul's, but Paul leaves him behind. He wanted him to come with him, but he leaves him behind because he's sick. Now, take it, Paul is an elder, right? He's the one who's teaching and writing scripture. He's an apostle. He's even greater than that. Why didn't he just whack out the oil? Johnson and Johnson on the forehead, sorted. All right, Trofo, let's go. Like, what are you hanging around for? Why didn't that just not happen? Obviously, there's something else going on there. See, the person who has faith trusts God's plan. They trust that, that sometimes God's plan means he won't heal us. And when we experience the fact that God answers our prayers with a no, we're not to blame the person's lack of faith. They've got enough to cope with, with physical difficulty, with, without us lumping on them and going, oh, it's because of your lack of faith. Think of Job's friends, inverted commas. If you've read the book of Job, these friends come along and go, Job, look at this, your life sucks. It's because you're a sinner. You're not righteous enough. And it's a song. You're not pretty enough. Anyway, it's, it's a song in that you're not righteous enough. Joe, maybe you've sinned and so you just need to just curse God and die. You know, how's that for a friend? They say that and in the end we know that it wasn't because of Job's unrighteousness. It was Satan tempting him and God had a bigger plan that was going on. So the person of faith trusts God. But the thing, if you want one more knockdown argument, it's this. There is one unanswered prayer in the Bible that we can be sure that the person was righteous. And we can be sure the person had perfect faith in God, but the prayer was still answered with a no. Do you know where that prayer is? Garden of Gethsemane. And his name is Jesus. Do you remember that? He's in the garden. He's about to go to his death. He's he's about to take the punishment that we all deserve. Have a look at Mark 14. It should be on the screen. This is what Jesus says. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. He gets it. He has faith, right? All things are possible for you, Father. Anything is possible. Take this cup away from me. But not my will, but yours, he said. Now take it, here is a prayer that Jesus has asked his father 
and his father has said no to. Is it because he wasn't righteous enough? No, he's perfect. Right? He's, he's got the son. He's nothing. Is, is it because he didn't trust his father enough? No. Jesus trusted perfectly. Do you know why Jesus is turned down at this point? It wasn't because he didn't ask properly. It wasn't because he didn't have enough faith or he wasn't righteous enough. It's because he didn't have perfect knowledge. He didn't have perfect knowledge. This might sound a little bit weird for a second, but at this point that we read about Jesus as a man, in that point in human history, there are things that he did not know. Like he says in Mark 13, he doesn't know the time or the hour of his return. That is for the Father only to know. There are parts of the Father's plan that he does not know yet. Uh, In John 5, he said he did not do anything on his own, but only what he saw his Father doing. There's a reality in the point of history here where Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, has limited his knowledge of what is going on. He does not know it. And so at this point in time, as he's about to face the penalty that you and I deserve, he's about to take the punishment we deserve, he knows the plan. I'm about to face the anger of my father, something I've never faced in all of eternity. For all of humanity turning their back on God, that's about to be poured out on me. Like... Imagine that all kind of condensed down onto this moment. I'm going to walk and be crucified. It's about to be poured out on me. So he says, Lord, I want to see people saved. Father, I want to see salvation happen. I'm in it. I know the plan. We've been here from the beginning. I just want to ask if there is any other way, but not my will, but yours. He doesn't have knowledge of that particular thing. Now, if the knowledge of Jesus was not complete, how much more incomplete is our knowledge of God's plans and will? We're not going to know what's going on. So often we think, God, why aren't you doing this? Why isn't this happening? We know infinitely less than Jesus did. So if God had said to us, I'll give you whatever you ask as long as you have enough faith, it'd be destructive. We could just grow in our faith. I've got so much faith, God, Ha! now you've got to do it my way. Right, I know the best way forward. This is what has to happen. And God's like, oh, you twisted my arm. Okay, I'll do it. And it's not like that at all. We don't have his knowledge. Let me use an illustration and hopefully we'll point this out. I want you to think, have you ever wanted something that you thought would be really good for you? You thought it'd be good for you, it'd be good for the people around you. But then later on, you've worked out that if you'd actually got it, it would have been a great mistake. Have you ever had one of those situations? Uh, let, let me put before you uh, an imaginary one that happens in our family. Imagine uh, Lara, who's at five at this point in time, comes up to me, because she's Lara, it's kind of like Lara Croft, right? She comes up and says, Dad, with her kind of batting eyelids, for Christmas, I would love an M16 machine gun. Like a real one, Dad. Like with real bullets. I just think it would be such a great present. Now, she hasn't said this, but imagine. I just think it would be such a great present. And think of all the excuses she could give at this point. Like, Dad, I could, I could, I could play wars with my friends. And it'd be awesome, right? If a monster comes into my room at night, I wouldn't have to wake you up. I could just shoot them. They'd be gone. It'd be so great. If robbers come into our house, I wouldn't have to be worried about, what's that noise? I heard someone outside anymore. I'd just get up and go downstairs and, like, shoot them. How great would an M16 be? Like... Think about it. It'd be so good. 
And dad, I know that you love me and I know that, like, that you want me to trust you and I've been such a good girl lately. So I think because I've been so good and I really trust you and I know you could get it, you owe me an M16 machine gun. Now, what does our good and loving father say when their daughter says that to them? I'll tell you what he says. No! (laughs) You do not have all the knowledge in this situation. This will end badly. There'll be some fight. You're like, no, it's mine, it's mine. You'd both be dead. And they'll be like, it would be horrible. This is not a good idea. We need to see we can't manipulate God by our faith. We can't twist him by our faith. Also, we need to recognize we are dependent on God. We don't know the future. We don't have all the knowledge. See, God cannot promise that whatever we ask, without condition, he will give us. Because we don't have all the knowledge in life. It would be an unloving promise to give us. To think that we know what's best. (laughs) I don't know what's best. So often I make dumb choices in life. Imagine if God gave us all the power to do absolutely everything we ever wanted to. No, he, he loves us too much to say yes to every stupid thing we ask. The prayer of faith is a prayer that depends on God's plans, that trusts His plans and His will and the way He works no matter what. The prayer of faith is not a command. Sometimes people come along and go, look, I'm just going to command it. God, you must see this happen. You must heal this person. I I command this to happen. We don't get to talk to God like that. Who do we think we are? That's like a little kid coming up going, Dad, you must give me the M16 machine gun. I'm like, no. Like, who are you talking to here? We don't command God. Prayer means asking, dependently, Lord. Even Jesus, if this is your will, let it be. Not my will, but yours. No, God loves us far more than to answer every prayer we ask with a yes. And he gives us this great assurance, knowing that God will either give us what we ask for, or he'll give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. You see that? He'll either give us what we ask for or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. He's a loving father. He's shown his love at the cross so clearly. And that's the reason that there's unanswered prayer. Why has God not answered this? Because he loves you and me too much to answer that with a yes right now. This is for our best. And he loves us. So at that point, we kind of come along to this passage and go, okay, so what's with the oil? Like, what is with the oil in this bit? Uh, Maybe healings haven't worked because someone used the wrong type of oil. I've seen in a whole page advertisement in the central leader that we get in our letterbox that was encouraging people to come to this seminar and they would give you some special oil from Jerusalem that was guaranteed to heal you. I kid you not, legit. I'm like, I want to go and get this oil. Where is it? Like, is is there something special about this oil? But what we miss is that oil was a commodity in the first century. Oil was actually just medicine. (laughs) Kind of like saying, oh, I need to go to the shops and get some Panadol. I need to go to shops and get some oil. And they used oil to soothe the body and soften wounds. You kind of get that. You get a bit of sunburn. You're like, I want a bit of that oily stuff that kind of supposed to make sunburn go away. And you see this in the Bible as well. If you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus tells this parable. There's this guy on the side of the road who got bashed up by robbers and a number of people go past and they ignore him. They say, oh, who am I? They cross to the other side of the road. Uh, But then this Good Samaritan comes along and finds him. And do you remember what he did when he found him? Any, any memories? He, 
He poured two things on the Good Samaritan. Do you know what they are? Have a guess. Call it out. Oil. Why else would I be saying this right now? Oil and wine. Now, why would you pour wine on someone? Well, great question. Antiseptic purposes. Right? If you've got cuts, you pour wine on that kind of cleanse it out, and then you whack oil on to soothe the body. That's why. Right? He, he wasn't making him into a salad. That's, that's not why it happens. He's oil and wine. Sweet. Mix him up. Great. He'll go off. No, he's, he's, he's actually using medicine. And when James talks about oil here, I think he's helping us to recognize that medicine and prayer go hand in hand. We don't just pray for the person that is sick and go, right, well, let's not give them any drugs. You know, they need blood, but that's okay, we'll just pray for them. And he's saying the two go hand in hand. And bring the oil and the elders. The person's sick, pray to God. There's a spiritual issue going on here, perhaps, that we need to deal with, and we'll come to that in a second. But also bring the oil so they kind of soothe and, and, and looked after in that way. We mustn't divide the two and go, God, if I really trust in God, I won't use any of the common graces that he's given us. Actually, I can go to that and see them hand in hand. So praying for someone is saying, Lord, please heal this person. Please help the doctors to be able to work the way of healing them. Or if not, please just heal them totally without the help of doctors. Please just do something outside your natural laws and just see it happen. Or if you want to work within them and through doctors and the wisdom, Lord, whatever we're at this moment, we're asking you, please heal them. I think that's what James has in mind here at this point. So then, and last point, but we'll spend a bit of time on it. What is this passage saying? What is it actually talking about here when it says we should be praying for the sick? Well, I think the key to understand it is to understand the connection between sin and sickness. What connection is there between sin and sickness? Well, to understand that, we've got to do a little bit of hard work on the passage. Because we've got to see what is literally there. Now, if you've got an ESV, hand up if you've got an ESV. I'm not an ESV lover, but you're right tonight. Because the ESV is based on the RSV, and the RSV gets this right. This is what it actually says. Verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will save, not make well, will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise them up. The word there is literally the word, same word used for save. It is save. It's not, it's not just make the sick person well. It is save. Now, this is a bit odd. The sick person is saved. That's a bit weird. But then in verse 16, we read that the sinner is healed. Maybe James got a bit confused. You know, it's been a long day. Lots of people to talk to. Maybe he meant to say the other way around. The sick would be healed and the sinner would be saved but he doesn't. He says the sick person is saved and the sinner is healed. Why would he do that? Why would he put those words that way around? And then James gets to the end in verse 19 and 20 and he starts talking about in the context of healing, bringing someone back from wandering from the truth. He says it is good to bring someone back from sinning or from wandering away. What's that called? Repentance. It's good for you to help people to repent. Why are you talking about sin and salvation and repentance in the context of someone who's got the flu or someone who is sick? How do those two go together? And why is sickness even in this passage at this point if he's talking about repentance and sin and salvation and forgiveness? Well, firstly, because this passage is about prayer and we're to be dependent on God in everything, including sickness. But secondly, because sickness is a spiritual issue. Sickness 
is about death. Think about it. What is sickness? It's the prelude to death. If sickness is left to continue, what happens? You die. Right? Sickness is kind of like a warning sign, a a remembrance, a symbol, not a symbol, a a signal (laughs) that death is coming. That we actually are facing death. If you think about it, that's exactly what sickness does, but we kind of push it aside. Sickness is actually a salvation issue. Why, why do we die? Paul tells us in Romans, we die because we've rejected God. We've said to the life-giving God, I don't want you in my life. We haven't treated him as God. We haven't treated him rightly. So the whole reason sickness is in the world and then death is in the world is because we've rejected the life-giving God. So here, as James talks about sickness, he's bringing into focus death and death's solution. Now, as a side note, we need to say that sickness, as I said earlier, is not always kind of linked exactly to one specific sin. So, for instance, in John 9, the disciples see a blind man and they ask Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus says, none of them. This just happened, so God could display his glory. But the Bible also holds out that our sickness could be related to sin, specifically. See, sickness is that reminder that from dust I was taken and to dust I will return. Sometimes sickness... um, is caused by the reality that we're feeling guilty about sin, that we're stuck in some habit or pattern. And the reality of that guilt or shame runs us down, the anxiety of knowing we're at odds with the true and living God, but we want to live this way, causes real physical illness. Other times, God provides us with illnesses, with sickness, because He wants us to be dependent on Him and recognize that we, well, we are facing death without Him. If we just stand on our own two feet, confident, thinking we can get through life doing whatever we want and not needing Him until that last Hail Mary pass, we're wrong. Sickness drops us to our knees, literally. And it should cause us to pray. Lord, I'm dependent on You. My life is in Your hands. And it should cause us to reflect, are there any areas of my life that I'm at odds with God? This is a reminder that death is in the world and that death is my future and I need to come to You now. And suddenly it starts to make sense. As to why when someone is sick, you'd call the elders who teach God's word. You'd call the elders because they're helping that person think through where they're at with God. They're teaching the word of God. The aim is that they might recognize this is where they're at. They might look for any sin that is there and if there is any, repent. And then if that's the case, if God has given them some sickness so they can see this, they would then be healed and that's sweet. And in James 4, we know that there are some issues within the church. And they're not just individual issues. They're issues within the community. There's been fights and quarrels amongst them. And so judgment could come from God amongst this community. And so God calls in the pastors, the elders of the church, to sort this out, to help them work out their fights and quarrels so they could see where they're at and recognize that they need to not stand on their own two feet saying, we've got this right, but repent. Trust God and serve Him. And then it suddenly starts to make a little more sense why... James uses Elijah as an example of prayer. Did you ever ask that question? Why did James go to Elijah? If you know the story of Elijah, what happened was, um, I mean, he's a great example because he, he prayed to God and it happened. But there are lots of people throughout the Old Testament that prayed to God and it happened. Why did he go to Elijah? Well, Elijah uh, had been told by God that King Ahab, he'd, 
He'd not been treating God rightly. He'd been going and having foreign gods and worshipping the Baals and the altars. And so Elijah goes to Ahab and says, I'm actually going to pray to God and ask him, as God's told me to do, that it doesn't rain for three and a half years. You need to depend on the true God, Ahab. Not your crazy Baal gods. We'll see how you go. Three and a half years, no water. And that's what happens. There's no water for three and a half years. God answers that prayer as he told Elijah to pray. Then three and a half years comes by and then he goes to King Ahab and he says, okay, God's now going to bring the rain. And God does. Why, what, why does... Why does James use this example? Just because Elijah prayed some big stuff and it happened? Because there was this great moment where he showed Ahab that the prophets of Baal that he was worshipping really had no power at all and then he called down fire on this altar and it burnt it up and then showed Ahab that really God was the true and living God even though Ahab was supposed to be a king of Israel. Why did he use this example? Because in both those instances, the, the, the issue that's happening when Elijah prays is judgment. There is judgment coming on Ahab and his people because they've rejected the true and living God. God brings judgment on his people. And remember, that's the context of the letter so far. Chapter 5, 1 to 11 is talking about Jesus returning. Remember, the judge is standing at the door. This whole section is talking about sickness as a judgment that God perhaps may give so that people would recognize they need to be dependent on him and come to him and pray, and then God relieves that judgment. It's exactly what happened to Israel and Ahab through Elijah. So when God brings sickness and judgment because of sinfulness, in this situation, the elders should take responsibility in prayer. They should come and say, church, people, guys that are fighting, we need to sort this out. You need to put God first. You need to work out what it is to live together well. You need to let your yes be yes, your no be no. You need to love one another. You need to live out your faith, not just being people that speak the truth, but don't live it, but that walk the talk and talk the walk. And so the elders then are to encourage others to confess their sins. Look at verse 19. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. The most important thing, when everything is boiled down in this chapter, in this whole book, is this. Where are you at with God? Where are you at in your relationship with Him? Do you trust Him? Do you have faith? Do you rely and depend on what Jesus has done on the cross and that's your only hope? And so you live a life, not of Hail Mary prayers, but of prayers that are consistently dependent on Him. Do you come to Him and praise Him and thank Him for what He has done and saving you and and being faithful to His Word and keeping His promises? Or do you live a life that thinks, you know what, I can do this on my own. I don't need God. I just want to try and do this my own way. I I have a faith kind of, but I'm going to be half-baked in that. The book of James, it doesn't let you get away. It doesn't let you go, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to live it out. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but it doesn't really affect how I live. Where are you at with God? The answer to that is really, how often do you pray? How often are you dependent? It's not saying we need to be in prayer every minute of every day, kind of like some monk on a pole in the middle of Africa. But it's saying we need to be dependent in the way that we live. What a joy it is to know that Jesus has paid the price for us. That he said to the Father, not my will, but yours. That he went through that and took the penalty for our sin so that we could trust him. What a joy it is. 
What a joy it is to know that He doesn't leave us in the dark about how to live. That we can use our words rightly. That we can love others rightly. The question is, where are you at with God? And if tonight you don't know God, you, you don't know Jesus, you haven't trusted Jesus with your life, then can I encourage you, make tonight the night that you say, yeah, I want to be in. Father, please forgive me. Help me to trust you. Help me to put you first in life and experience the freedom that is knowing that God is in control no matter what. That in the ups and downs in life, he loves you and cares for you and he's taking you to the place that you need to be so you might endure. Don't stand back. Come to Jesus. Recognize who he is tonight. And if you are a Christian and you've been flirting around the edges, living out the the Christian life, just kind of doing whatever you want, stop it. The judge is at the door. Our future depends on your response to Jesus now. And if you are living the Christian life and trusting and being dependent, keep going. Don't give up through the ups and downs, the hardships of life. Keep holding on to Jesus. Pray to him. Because life is not about living in a relationship with God that you don't speak to him at all until the final day then you shoot up the Hail Mary prayer. Life is about recognizing the joy it is to know God is our father and Jesus is our brother. And the Spirit is the one who convicts and molds and shapes us in line with God's word until Jesus returns and we spend eternity with him. Friends, let sickness remind you that death should be our end. And let it bring you back to repentance, confessing our sin to one another and treating God as God. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much tonight for your word to us in the book of James. For that reminder that real faith, real dependence actually lives itself out in works, in the way that we live. Lord, help us see sickness as a reminder of the reality of what we should deserve and do deserve. And draw us to Jesus, to see the enormity of what he has done in our place, taking our sin for us, offering us life. Father, we confess that all too often we aren't dependent on you. We live our lives our own ways. So tonight we ask, we give you our all. And we ask that you would fix our eyes on your son so that we might serve him with everything. We pray this in your son's great name. Amen.